Well, good evening. It is a pleasure and a joy to get to share God's word with you. As has been said, we'll be in Psalm 19 this evening, and the subject matter is what the Lord has revealed to us. Now, before we get into the text, let me ask a question and maybe paint a somewhat bleak picture so I can draw out a contrast and maybe get our gears turning. What would you say of a father who from the day of his kid's birth and all through their childhood refused to show his face to them or let his presence be known? Now, let's say that he objected to any family members or family friends in these kids' life. He forbid them of sharing any detail or information at all about their father to these kids. He wants to be in the shadows and completely unknown to these poor children. He doesn't care what comes of their lives, no matter how reckless their decisions in life might be. He's completely indifferent to them and to what comes of them. How bleak. We can certainly say that these children know nothing of a father's love because this so-called dad has shown the opposite of love. He's shown sheer indifference to them. And we'd probably say that he's really no father at all or certainly not the sort of father that we would want for ourselves or wish on any child we care about. Well, brothers, sisters, I am happy to report to you tonight that our God is nothing like that. He is a loving father. He shows us who he is. He shows us the way of life and faith that blesses and enriches our lives, and he shows us his salvation for broken people like you and broken people certainly like myself. Well, open, open your Bibles with me to Psalm 19. If you're using a pew Bible, that's page 456. And as we'll see in this Psalm, David, who wrote it, he knew that the creator of the universe was a loving father who didn't leave us in the dark as to who he is. He knew the father was also a wonderful shepherd who leads his people in the way of blessing. So with that said, let's read all the entirety of Psalm 19. It starts, it says this, verse one. The heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech nor are there words whose voice is not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom, leaving his chamber, and like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens and its circuit to the end of them, and there's nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. 
Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Well, we could summarize this entire psalm by saying that the Lord has revealed himself in his works and in his word, which bless us and lead us to him. They bless us and lead us to him. So for you note takers out there, three, three main points tonight. Number one, the Lord has revealed himself in creation that we would know his presence. Think of that as his works. Point two, the Lord has revealed himself in his word that we would be blessed. Point one, his works. Point two, his word that we'd be blessed. And point three, what the Lord has revealed should drive us to him. And there we will study David's response and take example from it. Well, point one, the Lord has revealed himself in creation that we would know his presence. So in verse one of this psalm, we see that God has shown us his glory in the heavens, what we see when we look upward to the skies. And this term glory, we, we throw it around often in, in Christian circles, understandably. It's all through the word of God. We sing it in our songs, but it's probably somewhat of a murky or vague term to many of us. So what is in view when we discuss the glory of God. Well, you recall, some of you, that when Moses was meeting with God, this is Exodus 33, a text that Pastor Mark will surely be in in the coming weeks, Moses famously asked the Lord to show him his glory. And God told him, his response is interesting, God told him that he'd make all of his goodness pass before Moses. So when we're talking about the glory of God being revealed, we're saying that God has shown us his goodness, his specialness, his beauty. The Hebrew word for glory actually refers to weight or heaviness. So we can also think of God's glory as the weight or gravity of him, that which sets him apart from all others. And in this opening verse of the psalm, we see his glory and handiwork in the skies. God has immersed our human experience with visions of his greatness. And it's not just a meager hint, hint. Glory, glory. No, verse one, the heavens declare the glory of God and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. It's no secret, it's loud, and it's in our faces. And before we go too far, let's be reminded that this isn't some vague deity that you can't define or that Americans might throw around in casual conversation as is our way. It's the work and beauty of the one true God, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who has redeemed and reconciled us to him in the midst of our brokenness and rebellion, every one of us who are his children. So when we look at the heavens, we should see not only the glory of God, but his love, his love. Now, some of the men in this church are studying in a book called Delighting in the Trinity by a British man named Michael Reeves. And Reeves says this, next time you look up at the sun, moon, and stars and wonder, remember they're there because God loves, because the Father's love for the Son burst out that it might be enjoyed by many. And they remain there only because God does not stop loving. He is an attentive Father who numbers every hair on our heads for whom the fall of every sparrow matters. And out of love, he upholds all things through his son and breathes out natural life on all through his spirit, end quote. 
Let's also recall the very wonderful and lofty truths that the New Testament teaches us about God, the Son, the Lord Jesus. Colossians says that by the Son, all things were created. All things came about through him, for him, and even by him. In him, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Jesus is deity. Jesus is God. Hebrews 1, elsewhere in the New Testament, tells us that in these last day, days, God has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So be sure that you see Christ as we read about God's glory in creation. Verse 2 tells us that this, this declaration of glory, or speech, as it said, is constant. So each day when we rise, there's another reminder that the God who created all things is present. And it's as though the Lord beckons us not to get too consumed with our daily grind that we forget the greater purpose of things that men and women would know and walk with their God. We also see in this verse that nighttime gives us an even greater understanding of the Lord's immensity. I mean, with the naked eye, when we're removed from light pollution and city lights, we're in the country, let's say, we can see galaxies with our eyes that inspire our imagination. Many of us have seen the images that have come back from, from NASA, from the Hubble Space Telescope. Visions and images of galaxies far, far away that are just booming with color. They seem unreal to us, like artistry. And it's as though their sole purpose is to boggle our minds with awe and wonder. Well, what effect should this continual scene of God's glory have on all of us here on earth? Well, it should enliven our hearts and direct us to acknowledge him in all that we do. We should live as people who are truly taken back by how grand and how special our God is. David, a different psalm, he provided a very good example for us, a model for us, when he reflected on the greatness of the Lord in Psalm 8. He said this, when I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man? that you're mindful of him and the son of man, that you care for him. David was amazed that the one with the power to put the stars in the sky would consider him, care for him, a mere man, and a sinful, fallen man at that, just like every one of us in this room. But David's God is merciful and loved him. And that same God is our God. He loves us. Our God is not a distant deist God who set the wheels in motion of creation and then checked out. No, God created not as a detached, distant creator, but a loving father. The earth was made for us. And so the beauty around us, again, it shows us his glory, but it also shows fatherly love. So ask yourselves, ask yourselves, is David's mindset yours? Do you live with a sense of awe towards your God for his greatness and for his condescending coming down to care for you? And not just in our hours of corporate worship, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week, do you acknowledge him? Is he elevated in your heart? Do you have a heart of worship on Monday through Saturday? It's very easy to find ourselves consumed with busyness. It's the American way. 
productivity, lengthy task lists, an unending menu of extracurricular activities for ourselves and for our children, while the heavens are reminding us every day of the greater meaning of our existence, to live corum Deo in the face of God. Some of you may need to slow down, take on less, so that you can walk in a closer fellowship with your Lord, acknowledging him throughout the day, throughout the week even. And for others, myself included, we may just need to get outside more often. Enjoy the spring weather. Enjoy the trees blossoming, coming back to life. Enjoy your garden for some of you. Hit the trails. Plan a really intense hike for some of you younger, able-bodied folks. Do whatever it takes to be reminded of God's love and beauty that he shared for us, not only in the skies, but in nature all around around us, and let that stir your affections for him. Parents, even grandparents, here is a great opportunity to lay the foundations of faith for your kids and for your grandkids. If God's specialness is all around us as we see here, that means there's no shortage of opportunities to talk with your kids or grandkids about the great design and wisdom of the Lord on any given day out together. You could say, son, look at how these trees are coming to life with color and the sunlight of spring. You can gaze up at the clouds with them and say, granddaughter, look at those horses in the clouds going across the sky. How marvelous. And maybe your granddaughter is a smart aleck and says, what are you talking about, granddad? I see rabbits, not horses. Rabbits it is. Just go with it in that case. But inspire their wonder and curiosity with the world that God has given to us. That's one of the best gifts that you can give them. Well, verses three and four tell us that this message or speech of God's beauty, it covers the globe. And this is figurative language, so in one sense, it's inaudible speech. But in another sense, it's a declaration that's louder than words. It's unavoidable, and it reaches to the ends of the world. And so the question then naturally arises, if God has made his presence so loud and so clear, then why would anyone deny him? Why is that? Well, the Apostle Paul takes up that exact question in Romans chapter 1. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you would. Hold your place in Psalm 19. And let's look at Romans 1, a passage that many of us are familiar with, but we will read again. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 18, Paul says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. God has made himself known in his creation so that there's no excuse for anyone to say that they're ignorant of him. And the reason that men and women deny him is a heart issue. It's a moral issue. It's not a head or an intellectual dilemma that leads to this denial. They suppress the truth. They suppress or ignore what can be known about God. And what's the motivation for their suppressing that truth according to Romans 1? 
It's their unrighteousness. They'd rather keep their sins than to give thanks to God. Well, thank God, brothers and sisters, that he has broken through the hardness of our own hearts, the Lord has, so that we see God's glory all around us, but except for God's grace, we would be the man or woman of Romans chapter one. Thank God that he's broken through our hardened hearts. Well, Psalm 19, if you look at the end of verse four, David then describes the son. And we can think of the son as a messenger of God's glory. The psalmist says that the heavens are like a tent for the sun. So the sun sets in the west. Please ignore my directions. I'm challenged in that area. But the sun sets in the west and we see it no more. But then the next day, verse five, it comes out like a joyful bridegroom leaving his chamber and like a strong man that no one is going to stop. Now, think of a man who has wanted to take this particular woman as his bride for a long time, let's say a, a year, 18 months or something, and he's honoring her parents' wishes to vet him. Be patient. But finally, that wedding day has come, and her parents say, she's yours. Green light, son. Take her to be your bride. Start a life together and be happy. Well, that man is a joyful, joyful bridegroom, and his smile is probably from ear to ear, and nothing's going to stop him from taking his long-awaited bride. And in a similar way, the sun runs its course with joy, and nothing stops it. Without fail, it rises on one side of our vision, it marches across the sky, and it sets on the other side. God put it in motion and sustains it by his power and his providence, and it's a daily reminder of the Lord's goodness and his reliability. Well, verse six says that nothing is hidden from its heat. Nothing hidden from its heat. Now, kids, pop quiz, you got the sun, you got the earth, it's rotating. How long does it take, looking for kids, how long does it take the light of the sun to reach all parts of the earth? 24 hours, one full day, that's right, one full turn, one full day, 24 hours. Second question, other than light, what else does the sun put off? It puts off heat, and as the earth rotates, exposing the sun, nothing is hidden from its heat. It reaches every corner of our planet. And in, as the, uh, and in the same way, God's glory, his goodness, his specialness, it shines on every spot on earth. He hasn't hidden him, himself. As far as the sun shines, God's divine nature can be seen by all people. He's revealed himself in creation that we would know his presence. And yet it's not enough to know him only as the creator. We must know him as the righteous king who gave himself to reconcile a broken world, which brings us to our second point, that the Lord has revealed himself in his word that we'd be Bless. Now look at verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 are a summary of the different aspects of God's will. Let me drop my microphone. Do you hear me? Very good. 7 and 8, these are a summary of the different parts of God's will, along with benefits for each of them. So we see in verse 7, we see his law. In Hebrew, this is the word Torah. That's a comprehensive term for God's will. It's a summary term. And the rest are a decomposition. These other nouns in verses 7 and 8, a decomposition, smaller groupings or units of God's will. So we see his testimony, which refers to the truths that he attests. 
we see his precepts and commands, which are the precision and authority that he addresses us with. We see his rules, or in some translations, decrees, which refer to his judicial decisions about human situations, what to do in different scenarios of human interaction or conflict. And taken together, these describe God's prescribed will for those who inhabit the world that he created. Each of these phrases are accompanied by a blessings. And we don't want to stringently divide these benefits from one another too much, because if we know and apply God's word to our lives, we'll experience all of these spiritual blessings or benefits. And note that every one of the parts of these will, these nouns in verses 7 and 8, are directly tied to the Lord. So you see the words of the Lord, the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, precepts of the Lord, etc. The psalmist has no place for demoting the scripture from their divine author, separating them from the God that delivered them to men. Remember what the Apostle Paul told Timothy, that all scripture is breathed out by God, and David certainly agreed with that sentiment. Now, what about the law of the Lord? Verse 7, the law of the Lord is perfect. It's uncorrupted. It's perfect for instructing us in how we should live. And this is broader than the law of Moses. This refers to all of God's revealed will. And it's important to understand that law and grace do not divide neatly by Old Testament versus New Testament. No. Old Testament saints received God's grace as we have. And the New Testament makes clear that workers of lawlessness will not inherit the kingdom. Let's also remember what Pastor Marcus taught us in his study through the book of Exodus. God has given moral laws which are perpetual. They reflect the righteous and unchanging character of God. But then he's also given laws that were only intended for the nation of Israel and for a particular time. You had ceremonial or sacrificial laws that were a precursor to Christ's work of redemption. And then there's other laws, civil or judicial laws, as we call them often, that were intended to govern the nation. And while the purpose and application is different among these, they are perfect for whom they were intended and the purpose for which they were intended. Well, what about the benefit? So verse 7 says that God's law does what? Revives the soul, reviving the soul. It leads us back to proper alignment with God's design. In our sinful state, we are in desperate need of guidance, a light to shine for us. And God's word is a lamp into our feet and a what? A light into our path. Now, kids, uh, think of buying a uh, very elaborate Lego set, maybe 500 pieces, something real ambitious. And let's say that on the box they advertise, you put all these little pieces together in just the right way, and you can have a wonderful superhero action figure. Okay. Well, the people that make that Lego set are kind enough to include a very detailed instruction manual. Connect this piece to that. Connect it to these 10 pieces you put together in previous steps. And in, you know, 300 days, lo and behold, you're going to have that wonderful action figure that you were seeking after. It would be miserable to try to figure out how to put that together, all those pieces, without a guide for you. Well, God didn't leave us in the dark as to the way that blesses our lives and leads us to him. Praise God. Also in verse 7, we see the testimony of the Lord is sure. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. We can take it to the bank, as they say. What's the benefit? Makes the simple-minded 
wise. And there's a big difference between being educated and having wisdom. Remember Romans 1. Those who didn't honor God or give thanks, they claimed to be wise, but in fact, they became fools. So having a PhD, having a bunch of letters behind your professional name do not equate to wisdom, but embracing the Lord's testimony does. So those who may be lower in man's measure of intelligence, they can beam with godly wisdom, and I've benefited from relationships with several men in my younger years who beamed with godly wisdom, though we wouldn't consider them the most intellectual types. Well, verse 8 says that the Lord's precepts are right, rejoicing the heart, and his commandments are pure, enlightening the eyes. Living in God's will makes our hearts rejoice, and it gives clarity to our lives. And of all people, of all people, God's children, those who embrace his word and possess the words of life in his word, should be marked by joy and contentment. So ask yourselves, be introspective. Is that a mark of your life? Would others describe you as having those traits, joy, contentment? Do they see a person who's rejoicing in their heart to know their God through what he has revealed? Our Lord wants us to be a joyful people that bless the world. Well, as we reflect on the qualities of the word of God, remember that all the scriptures, this was said this morning actually, all the scriptures are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus. The resurrected Jesus told his disciples, Luke chapter 24, he taught them that the law, the prophets, even the Psalms were all about him. So the Psalm that we're discussing right now was fulfilled in Christ. The law that's alluded to in these particular verses of Psalm 19 was also fulfilled completely in Christ. He's the word that became flesh, the pinnacle, the high point of God's revelation and the perfect embodiment of God's righteousness. So the ultimate way, the ultimate way to have your soul restored, your eyes enlightened, your heart rejoicing is to be united to him. The blessings in these verses are found in Christ. Found in Christ. Well, in verse 9, we see the fear of the Lord being referenced. The fear of the Lord. This is the right response to encountering him. All in worship should follow that encounter. And this isn't a sort of fear that scares us away from the Lord. No, that's a sinful response to God's specialness. The fear of him that's endorsed in scripture and called clean draws us to him. It's magnetic in nature. And it's described as clean because it's a pure and undefiled approach to him that is always, always the appropriate response to God's glory. The fear of the Lord. It's being so overwhelmed with him in a good way that it pushes out our love for sin, draws us to him and pushes us away from sin in our life. It has a cleansing effect, you could say. Well, having discussed the attributes of God's law, David then speaks of his great appreciation of it. Verse 10, God's will is better than all the pleasures of the world, is the idea. Better than gold, better than honey. And it's probably a good exercise for us, for our American sensibilities, to mentally add to this verse whatever pleasures might appeal to us. What would you add to this verse, verse 10, to make it pack a punch for you? God's will, his law, his instruction is better than becoming rich. 
It's better than becoming famous and being adored by the masses. Fill in the blank to what speaks to your heart. It's better than all the pleasures of the world because it shows us our Lord and restores us. And by God's law and commandments, still in verse 10, we are warned. There are consequences to ignoring God's commands. And think of how sinful decisions or behaviors or reactions over the years have hurt you or damaged your relationship, caused great strain with you and the people you love. Truly, sin is destructive to our our lives. And the Lord's commandments aren't arbitrary. They're not random. They're for our good. Let's also not forget, though, that God is a righteous judge who cares deeply about the wrongs done to him and wrongs done to our fellow man. We will all stand before him and give an account of our lives. Well, verse 11, the psalmist goes on. In keeping his commandments, there is great reward. Now, we've seen the present-day benefits of embracing God's law and revelation in verses 7 and 8. We just discussed those. But there's also an eternal reward that awaits those who embrace God's righteous way. And to be clear, we are justified by faith in Christ alone. No rule-keeping, no good behavior can contribute to that. But we also see in God's word that in the end, we will be judged according to our works, which confirm our inward faith. And in the case of God's people, we'll be rewarded for our good works, the good fruit of our lives. And yet we know from the testimony of Scripture that any good that we can do is a work of God's sanctifying grace. So Christians, look at the kindness of your God. He gives you his Holy Spirit. He cleans you up from your brokenness. And in the end, he'll reward you with eternal life for the work that he does in you. Look at that grace. Look at the kindness of your God. uh, Point three. What the Lord has revealed drives us to him. In the last stanza of the psalm, we see David grappling with the wide reach of God's law. In light of his law, his testimony, his precepts, his commandments, the question arises, who can discern his errors? Who can know the full extent of the wrong that he or she does? And there's an implied answer. What do you think it is? No one. No one sees all of his or her sin. We see the tip of the iceberg. Much of our remaining corruption lies beneath the surface, out of our eyesight. And why don't we see them? Well, maybe they're less consequential. Those consequences are lesser than some of our greater sin struggles of our lives. Or maybe they are just so pervasive all around us that they're just completely off the radar like the air that we breathe. And so it calls for a good measure of humility. So as you experience strains in your relationships, your marriage, your relationship with your children, younger grown, friendships, you may be contributing to the issue in ways that you don't realize. You and I have much more corruption in us than we understand, and surely it's manifesting in ways that we don't always recognize. So don't assume that it's entirely the other person's fault when arguments arise or when there's a growing separation or strain with you and someone you love. Well, David sees his limitation and he asks for the Lord's forgiveness from sins 
that he doesn't even realize are there. He goes on to plead with God to keep him from presumptuous sins. Now, unlike hidden faults, these are sins that are done knowingly and intentionally. And when we as believers sin against God in this way, we presume upon his forgiveness. And we take advantage of God's kindness. And it's easy for us to say, take on the the heart of the Apostle Peter in the Gospels and say, not me, Lord, never me. I'll never forsake you. Or for us to say, I'll never, I could never sin in that sort of way or that sort of way. Fill in the blank of some terrible sin habit. Never me. But David's words are different. He says, keep me, Lord, from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. So again, we see a response of humility in David, the man after God's own heart. He knows his weakness. He knows that without God's grace, he'll find himself enslaved to the worst of sins that will ruin his life. He needs the Lord as his shepherd, or he will certainly stray into sins that will devour him. He sees his vulnerability. So let me ask you, how confident are you in your ability to keep yourself from falling into terrible, sinful habits? How is your self-confidence? How would you rate that to keep you from withstanding temptations? Well, the closer your answer is to zero, the goose egg, the better off you are. Because we are much more vulnerable than we realize. You and I need to appreciate our ability to make train wrecks of our lives and our relationships. We are vulnerable. So what then is the right response to what God has revealed of himself? Well, you guessed it. Humility. Humility. When David considered God's works, he asked, who am I that you're mindful of me, the son of man that you care for him? When David considered God's word, in this psalm, he pleads for God's help because he knows his weakness. Knowing and acknowledging your weakness and vulnerability to sin, it helps you because it drives you into the arms of the one who can actually sustain you, the one who loves you and gave his life for you. Jesus is our shelter from the temptations of the world and from our own internal corruption. We are utterly dependent on his grace to keep us in the narrow way of life that leads to blessing and not curse. Abiding in Christ and not inflated self-confidence is the best guard against our spiritual enemies and against the sin of our lives. Abiding in Christ, walking with him, not self-confidence, not our own strength. Jesus said, I am the vine You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I, in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. Apart from Christ, we can do nothing. And this was true of righteous deeds, good fruit, okay? But there's a corresponding reality for sin because apart from him, We can fall into all kinds of evil that we can't imagine. So the person who knows their dependence on Christ is in the safest place because the Lord is our shelter. 
The Lord is our shelter, not our own strength or willpower. And that's how God, that's how David rather addresses God in the closing verse, verse 14 of the Psalm. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. So David's just meditated on God's glory and God's righteous character. He feels the weight of his holiness. He knows that it's only by God's mercy and grace that he can approach his throne at all. And so he asks that his words and meditation, meaning all of him, be acceptable in his sight. And he calls on God as his rock of refuge and his redeemer. What God has revealed of himself and his perfect will should humble us and should drive us to him as our refuge, as our shelter, and as our savior. You and I are much worse lawbreakers than we realize, but our Lord is mightier to save and more faithful to forgive than we realize. So if you see your brokenness tonight, you feel the weight of your sin, but you haven't turned to Christ in faith, then run to him. He embraces all who come to him like a loving father. And to my fellow believers, most of you in here, let the growing awareness of his glory and of your sin drive you to him, cause you to love him more and help you to find greater joy and peace in your belonging to him, being in Christ. Rest for our souls is not found anywhere in this world. It's found in Christ alone. Now, we're about to partake in communion. And as we come to the Lord's table, we should come with the fear of the Lord, all at his greatness, his wonderfulness that he's revealed to us. And we should come in humility, knowing our desperate need for him to cover us. And praise God, he does cover us. So let's embrace our weakness and find our refuge in him.